Night and morning, usury, Mlidin, the secret of the gods, and south wind, from time and the gods, by Lord Dunsany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Time and the Gods by Lord Dunsany. Night and Morning. Once in an arbor of the gods, above the fields of twilight, night wandering alone came suddenly on morning. Then night drew from his face his cloak of dark gray mists, and said, See, I am night. And they two sitting in that arbor of the gods, night told wondrous stories of all the mysterious happenings in the dark. And morning sat and wondered, gazing into the face of night and at his wreath of stars, and morning told how the rains of Snamartis smoked in the plain, but night told how Snamartis held riot in the dark, with revelry and drinking and tales told by kings, till all the hosts of Minath crept against it, and the lights went out, and there arose the din of arms, or ever morning came. And night told how Sindana the beggar had dreamed that he was a king, and morning told how she had seen Sindana find suddenly an army in the plain, and how he had gone to it thinking he was king, and the army had believed him, and Sindana now ruled over Martis and Targadrides, Dinat, Tsan, and Tumeda. And most night loved to tell how Asernes, whose runes are scant memories on the desert's edge, but morning told of the twin cities of Nardis and Timaut that lorded over the plain, and night told terribly of what Minandes found when he walked through his own city in the dark. And ever at the elbow of regal night whispers rose, saying, Tell morning this. And ever night told, and ever morning wondered. And night spake on, and told what the dead had done when they came in the darkness, on the king that had led them into battle once. And night knew who slew Darnix and how it was done. Moreover, he told why the seven kings tortured Sidatheris, and what Sidatheris said just at the last and how the kings went forth and took their lives. A knight told whose blood had stained the marble steps that led to the temple of Ozan, and why the skull within it wears a golden crown, and whose soul is in that wolf that howls in the dark against the city. A knight knew whither the tigers go out of the Irasian desert, and the place where they meet together, and who speaks to them, and what she says, and why. And he told why human teeth had bitten the iron hinge in the great gate that swings in the walls of Mondas, and who came up out of the great marsh alone in the dark time, and demanded audience of the king, and told the king a lie, and how the king, believing it, went down into the vaults of his palace, and found only toads and snakes, who slew the king. And he told of ventures in palace towers in the quiet, and knew the spell whereby a man might send the light of the moon right into the soul of his foe. And night spoke of the forest, and the stirring of shadows, and soft feet pattering, and peering eyes, and of the fear that sits beyond the trees, taking to itself the shape of something crouched at the spring. But far under that arbor of the gods, down on the earth, the mountain peak Mondana looked morning in the eyes, and forsook his allegiance to night. And one by one the lesser hills about Mondana's knees greeted the morning, 
and all the while in the plains the shapes of cities came looming out of the dusk, and Congros stood forth with all her pinnacles, and the winged creatures of poesy carved upon the eastern portal of her gate, and the squat figure of avarice carved facing it upon the west, and the bat began to tire of going up and down her streets, and already the owl was home, and the dark lions went up out of the plain, back into their caves again. Not as yet shone any dew upon the spider's snare, nor came the sound of an insect stirring or bird of the day, and full allegiance all the valleys owned still to their lord the night. Yet earth was preparing for another ruler, and kingdom by kingdom she stole away from night, and there marched through the dreams of men a million heralds that cried with the voice of the cock, Lo, morning, come behind us! But in that arbor of the gods above the fields of twilight, the star wreath was paling about the head of night, and ever more wonderful on morning's brow appeared the mark of power, and at the moment, when the campfires pale and the smoke goes grey to the sky, and camels sniff the dawn, suddenly morning forgot night, and out of that arbor of the gods, and away to the haunts of the dark, night with his swart cloak slunk away, and morning placed her hand upon the mists, and drew them upwards, and revealed the earth, and drove the shadows before her, and they followed night. And suddenly the mystery quitted haunting shapes, and an old glamour was gone, and far and wide over the fields of earth a new splendour arose. End of Night and Morning Usury The men of Zonu hold that Jan is God, who sits as a usurer behind a heap of little lustrous gems, and ever clutches at them with both his arms. Scarce larger than a drop of water are the gleaming jewels that lie under the grasping talons of Jan, and every jewel is a life. Men tell, in Zonu, that the earth was empty when Jan devised his plan, and on it no life stirred. Then Jan lured to him shadows whose home was beyond the rim, who knew little of joys and naught of any sorrow, whose place was beyond the rim before the birth of time. These Jan lured to him and showed them his heap of gems, and in the jewels there was light, and green fields glistened in them, and there were glimpses of blue sky and little streams, and very faintly little gardens showed, that flowered in orchard lands, and some showed winds in the heaven, and some showed the arch of the sky with a waste plain drawn across it, with grasses bent in the wind and never aught but the plain. But the gems that changed the most had in their centre the ever-changing sea. Then the shadows gazed into the lives, and saw the green fields, and the sea on earth, and the gardens on earth. And Jan said, I will loan you each a life, and you may do your work with it upon the scheme of things, and have each a shadow for his servant in green fields and in gardens. Only for these things you shall polish these lives with experience, and cut their edges with your griefs, and in the end shall return them again to me. And thereto the shadows consented, that they might have gleaming lives and have shadows for their servants, and this thing became the law. But the shadows, each with his life, departed and came to Zonu and to other lands, and there with experience they polished the lives of Jan, and cut them with human griefs until they gleamed anew. And ever they found new scenes to gleam within these lives, and cities and sails and men shone in them where there had been before only green fields and sea. And ever Jan the usurer cried out to remind them of their bargain. When men added to their lives scenes that were pleasant to Jan, 
Then was Jan silent. But when they had the scenes that pleased not the eyes of Jan, then did he take a toll of sorrow from them, because it was the law. But men forgot the usurer, and there arose some claiming to be wise in the law, who said that after their labor, which they wrought upon their lives, was done, those lives should be theirs to possess. So men took comfort from their toil and labor, and the grinding and cutting of their griefs. But as their lives began to shine with experience of many things, the thumb and forefinger of Jan would suddenly close upon the life, and the man became a shadow. But away beyond the rim the shadows say, We have greatly labored for Jan, and have gathered griefs in the world, and caused his lives to shine, and Jan does naught for us. Far better, and we stayed where no cares are, floating beyond the rim. And there the shadows fear, lest ever again they be lured by specious promises to suffer usury at the hands of Jan, who is overskilled in law. Only Jan sits and smiles, watching his hoard increase in preciousness, and hath no pity for the poor shadows, whom he has lured from their quiet to toil in the form of men. And ever Jan lures more shadows and sends them to brighten his lives, sending the old lives out again to make them brighter still. And sometimes he gives to a shadow a life that was once a king's, and sendeth him with it down to the earth to play the part of a beggar. Or sometimes he sendeth a beggar's life to play the part of a king. What careth Jan? The men of Tsonu have been promised by those that claim to be wise in the law, that their lives, which they have toiled at, shall be theirs to possess forever. Yet the men of Zonu fear that Jan is greater and overskilled in the law. Moreover, it hath been said, that time will bring the hour when the wealth of Jan shall be such as his dreams have lusted for. Then shall Jan leave the earth at rest, and trouble the shadows no more, but sit and gloat with his unseemly face over his hoard of lives, for his soul is a usurer's soul. But others say, and they swear that this is true, that there are gods of old who be far greater than Jan, who made a law wherein Jan is overskilled, and who will one day drive a bargain with him, that shall be too hard for Jan. Then Jan shall wander away, a mean forgotten god, and perchance in some forsaken land shall haggle with the rain for a drop of water to drink, for his soul is a usurer's soul, and the lives... Who knoweth the gods of old, or what their will shall be? End of usury. Mlidain. Upon an evening of the forgotten years, the gods were seated upon Movra Navut, above Mlidain, holding the avalanche in leash. All in the middle cities stood the temples of their city's priests, and hither came all the people of Mlidain to bring them gifts, and there it was the wont of the city's priests to carve them gods for Mlidain. For in a room apart, in the temple of Eld, in the midst of the temples that stood in the middle city of Mlidain, there lay a book called the Book of Beautiful Devices, written language that no man may read or writ long ago, telling how a man may make for himself gods that shall neither rage nor seek revenge against the little people. And ever the priests came forth from reading in the Book of Beautiful Devices, and ever they sought to make benignant gods, and all the gods that they made were different from each other. Only their eyes turned all upon Mlidain. But upon Movranavut, for all of the forgotten years, the gods had waited and forborne until the people of Mlidain should have carven one hundred gods. 
Never came lightnings from Movrat Navut crashing upon Mlidin, nor blight or harvests, nor pestilence in the city. Only upon Movra Navut the gods sat and smiled. The people of Mlidin had said, Yoma is God, and the gods sat and smiled. And after the forgetting of Yoma and the passing of years, the people had said, Zungari is God, and the gods sat and smiled. Then on the altar of Zungari a priest had set a figure squat, carven in purple agate, saying, Yazun is God, still the gods sat and smiled. About the feet of Yonu, Bazun, Nidish, and Sundrao had gone the worship of the people of Mlidin, and still the gods sat holding the avalanche in leash above the city. There sat a great calm towards sunset over the heights, and Movranavut stood up still with gleaming snow, and into the hot city cool breezes blew from his benignant slopes as Tarzizalo, high prophet of Mlidin, carved out of a great sapphire the city's hundredth god, and then upon Movratnavut the gods turned away, saying, One hundred infamies have now been wrought. And they looked no longer upon Mlidin, and held the avalanche no more in leash, and he leapt forward, howling. Over the middle city of Mlidin now lies a mass of rocks, and on the rocks a new city is builded, wherein people dwell who know not old Mlidin, and the gods are seated on Movratnavut still. And in the new city men worship carven gods, and the number of the gods that they have carven is ninety and nine. And I, the prophet, have found a curious stone, and go to carve it into the likeness of a god for all Mlidin to worship. End of Mlidin. The Secret of the Gods Suni Moy, the small snake, saw the cool river gleaming before him afar off, and set out over the burning sand to reach it. Uldon, the prophet, came out of the desert and followed up the banks of the river towards his old home. Thirty years since, Uldon had left the city where he was born, to live his life in a silent place where he might search for the secret of the gods. The name of his home was the city of the river, and in that city many prophets taught concerning many gods, and men made many secrets for themselves. But all the while none knew the secret of the gods, nor might any seek to find it. For if any sought, men said of him, This man sins, for he giveth no worship to the gods that speak to our prophets by starlight when none heareth. And Uldun perceived that the mind of a man is as a garden, and that his thoughts are as the flowers, and the prophets of a man's city are as many gardeners who weed and trim, and who have made in the garden paths both smooth and straight, and only along these paths is a man's soul permitted to go, lest the gardeners say, This soul transgresseth. And from the paths the gardeners weed out every flower that grows, and in the garden they cut off all flowers that grow tall, saying, It is customary, and it is written, and this hath ever been, or that has not been before. Therefore Uldun saw that not in the city might he discover the secret of the gods. And Uldun said to the people, When the worlds began, the secret of the gods lay written clear over the whole earth, but the feet of many prophets have trampled it out. Your prophets are all true men, but I go into the desert to find a truth which is truer than your prophets. Therefore Uldun went into the desert, and in storm and still he sought for many years. When the thunder roared over the mountains that limited the desert, he sought the secret in the thunder, but the gods spake not by the thunder. When the voices of the beasts disturbed the stillness under the stars, he sought the secret there, 
but the gods spake not by the beasts. Uldun grew old, and all the voices of the desert had spoken to Uldun, but not the gods, when one night he heard them whispering beyond the hills. And the gods whispered one to another, and turning their faces earthward, they all wept. And Uldun thought he saw not the gods, yet saw their shadows turn, as they went back to a great hollow in the hills, and there, all standing in the valley's mouth, they said, O morning is I, O oldest of the gods, the faith of these gone, and yesterday for the last time thy name was spoken upon earth. And turning eastward they all wept again, and the gods tore white clouds out of the sky and draped them about the body of morning Zai, and wore him forth from his valley beyond the hills, and muffled the mountain peaks with snow, and beat upon their summits with drumsticks carved of ebony, playing the dirge of the gods. And the echoes rolled about the passes, and the wind howled, because the faith of the olden days was gone, and with it had sped the soul of morning's eye. So through the mountain passes the gods came at night bearing their dead father, and Uldun followed, and the gods came to a great sepulchre of onyx that stood upon four fluted pillars of white marble, each carved out of four mountains, and therein the gods laid morning's eye, because their old faith was fallen, and there at the tomb of their father the gods spake, and Uldun heard the secret of the gods, and it became to him a simple thing such as a man might well guess, yet hath not. Then the soul of the desert rose and cast over the tomb its wreath of forgetfulness, devised of drifting sand, and the gods strode home across the mountains to their hollow land. But Uldun left the desert and travelled many days, and so came to the river where it passes beyond the city to seek the sea, and following its bank came near to his old home, and the people of the city of the river, seeing him far off, cried out, Hast thou found the secret of the gods? And he answered, I have found it, and the secret of the gods is this. Sunimoe, the small snake, seeing the figure and the shadow of a man between him and the cool river, raised his head and struck once, and the gods are pleased with Sunimoe and have called him the protector of the secret of the gods. End of the secret of the gods. The South Wind Two players sat down to play a game together, to while eternity away, and they chose the gods as pieces wherewith to play their game, and for their board of playing they chose the sky from rim to rim, whereon lay a little dust, and every speck of dust was a world upon the board of playing. And the players were robed, and their faces veiled, and the robes and veils were alike, and their names were Faith and Chance. And as they played their game, and moved the gods hither and thither about the board, the dust rose, and shone in the light from the players' eyes that gleamed behind the veils. Then said the gods, See how we stir the dust. It chanced, or was ordained, who knoweth which, that ord a prophet. One night saw the gods as they strode knee-deep among the stars. But as he gave them worship, he saw the hand of a player, enormous over their heads, stretched out to make his move. Then Ord the prophet knew. Had he been silent, it might have still been well with Ord. But Ord went about the world, crying out to all men, There is a power over the gods. This the gods heard. Then said they, Ord hath seen. Terrible is the vengeance of the gods, and fierce were their eyes when they looked on the head of Ord, and snatched out of his mind all knowledge of themselves. 
and that man's soul went wandering afield to find for itself gods, forever finding them not. Then out of Ord's dream of life the gods plucked the moon and the stars, and in the night time he saw only black sky and saw the lights no more. Next the gods took from him, for their vengeance resteth not, the birds and butterflies, flowers and leaves and insects and all small things. And the prophet looked on the world that was strangely altered, yet knew not of the anger of the gods. Then the gods sent away his familiar hills to be seen no more by him, and all the pleasant woodlands on their summits, and the further fields. And in a narrower world, Ord walked round and round, now seeing little, and his soul still wandered, searching for some gods, and finding none. Lastly, the gods took away the fields and stream, and left to the prophet only his house and the larger things that were in it. Day by day they crept about him, drawing films of mist between him and the familiar things, till at last he beheld naught at all, and was quite blind and unaware of the anger of the gods. Then Ord's world became only a world of sound, and only by hearing he kept his hold upon things. All the profit that he had out of his days was here some song from the hills, or there the voice of the birds, and sound of the stream, or the drip of the falling rain. But the anger of the gods ceases not with the closing of flowers, nor is it assuaged by all the winter's snows, nor doth it rest in the full glare of summer, and they snatched away from Ord one night his world of sound, and he awoke deaf. But as a man may smite away the hive of the bee, and the bee with all his fellows builds again, knowing not what hath smitten his hive, or that it shall smite again. So Ord built for himself a world out of old memories, and set it in the past. There he builded himself cities out of former joys, and therein built palaces of mighty things achieved, and with his memory as a key, he opened golden locks, and had still a world to live in. Though the gods had taken from him the world of sound, and all the world of sight, but the gods tire not from pursuing, and they seized his world of former things, and took his memory away, and covered up the paths that led into the past, and left him blind and deaf and forgetful among men, and caused all men to know that this was he who once had said that the gods were little things. And lastly the gods took his soul, and out of it they fashioned the south wind, to roam the seas forever, and not have rest. And well the south wind knows that he hath once understood somewhere and long ago, and so he moans to the islands and cries along southern shores, I have known, and I have known. But all things sleep when the south winds speak to them, and none heed his cry that he hath known, but are rather content to sleep. But still the south wind, knowing that there is something that he hath forgot, goes on crying, I have known. Sing to urge men to arise and to discover it. But none heed the sorrows of the south wind, even when he driveth his tears out of the south, so that though the south wind cries on and on and never findeth rest, none heed that there is aught that may be known, and the secret of the gods is safe. But the business of the south wind is with the north, and it is said that the time will one day come when he shall overcome the bergs and sink the poles of ice, and come where the secret of the gods is graven upon the pole, and the game of fate and chance shall suddenly cease, and he that loses shall cease to be, or ever to have been, and from the board of playing fate or chance, who knoweth which shall win, shall sweep the gods away. 
End of the South Wind by Lord Dunsany. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.